Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. Let's open in prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we thank you tonight that we're able to sit and to soak up your spirit, to bask in your presence and to enjoy the fellowship uh, that we have via the uh, Son, Yeshua, the Messiah. Lord, we're so... Uh, Grateful that you have called us together, that you have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light, that you are bringing the truths of your words afresh into our hearts week by week. Lord, we know that it is our responsibility to press in, to to make it our uh, habit, to make it our purpose, to um, seek you, to... Um, uh, to find you and to incorporate uh, your words into our lives so that we can be strengthened, so that we can take a stand for truth, so that we can uh, be pleasing to you. We thank you, Lord, that you have um, uh, revealed your Son, Messiah, Yeshua, to us, that you have not um, left us in darkness, that you have not um, forgotten your covenant that you've made with our people, Israel that you are raising us up in these last days. Give us a voice, Lord. Give us boldness. Give us the courage to stand for truth. We know that uh, now more than ever that uh, a clear voice is needed. Lord, there's so much confusion in our country, so much uh, hate, so much division, so much uh, a strife, uh, so much backbiting. And indeed, around the world, Lord, uh, only your words are going to uh, dispel the darkness and to drive it out and to eventually uh, um, rise to the top and to, to show that you are the one true God. And so we thank you for this uh, awesome commission. Uh, be with us tonight as we study the book of Galatians. Uh, bless each and every student who's joined. I pray that you'll give them supernatural uh, ears to hear, a heart to understand, and a mind to uh, uh, retain the things that are being taught. Uh, Lord, I ask that you'll be with me as well. Help me to recall the things that I've studied this week. Uh, we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. No mean. Uh, my name is Torah teacher Arl bin Lyman Hanavi, and I am a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tunuvat in Thornton, Colorado. And uh, But I'm coming to you live from South Korea, and it's such a blessing to have each and every one of you join me each week via Skype for the Exegeting Galatians Commentary. Let's date stamp the recording. Tonight is November the 19th, 2016. I'm actually a day ahead of everyone else, but the date stamp for the recording is that date. For those of you who aren't able to join us week by week, I just want to remind you that you can find the commentary online at my website, www.tetzetorah.com that's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H dot com and uh, right from the home page there's some links along the top just click on either the link that says Galatians Commentary or you can click on the, the banner along the very very top uh, the, the, the golden banner that says Live Internet Galatians Study we meet each week Saturday evenings from 7pm to 8pm Central Standard Time so just do the math and adjust uh, according to whatever time zone that you're in. And um, if you can't make the commentary, if you can't make the study each week live, then um, be sure to catch the audio recordings that I post 
to the iTunes store as well as to my own website. Um, again, click on either the Galatians link or the live study link. And the live internet study link, if you scroll to the very bottom, uh, there's a link for the live study audio recordings that I upload usually a few days after I do the live recordings, okay? All right, without further ado, uh, let's read some liturgy for tonight. Since we're kind of starting a new section uh, for the, 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 the section that we're starting on tonight is, is basically a new section where we've been kind of working our way through the commentary and we're about halfway through. And so I like to try and start use new liturgy each time. But this time I want to choose something I've read in the past, maybe a few months ago. And it's kind of a central theological theme, in my opinion, uh, as I study the book of Galatians. So I just want to share it with you. you uh, those of you who've been following with me for several weeks, you've heard this before. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 28, out of the English Standard Version, um, talks to corporate Israel. This is God talking through the mouth of the prophet. Talks to uh, corporate Israel about God... Um, bringing the people out of exile and re, uh, replanting them back in the land. But not just that. God is actually going to do something uh, for them and to them and through them. He's going to, he's going to change their, uh, their inner man. He's going to change them as a people. But he's going to do it in a way that they're probably not expecting. So let's read these verses, and they're they're somewhat self-explanatory. But the part that jump the parts that jump out to me, I'll highlight when we get to them. Let's read the English first, and then I'll go back and read the Hebrew as well. The English reads, starting in verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when, through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations, and gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And look at this in verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Now, if you were Am Yisrael, if you were the people of Israel, and you heard those words from God, would you not rejoice? Yes, you would. But what's really, really um, wonderful about the promises here is that God is promising not only to bring them back into the land that he promised to the forefathers, but also to change their heart and to give them a heart to obey God as never before. Let's read those same uh, verses in Hebrew for us as well. Starting in verse 22 again, we read, and verse 24 
understanding the role of the New, Te New Testament, the New, New Covenant, uh, as it incorporates the existing uh, covenant or the existing words of the covenant, the Torah, uh, the, the um, Tanakh. Verse 27 says, et et asher I will put my spirit within you, God says, and notice the result of God putting his spirit within him, within us, is that it causes us to walk into his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. And this is in distinction to the absence of the spirit leaves us with the inability to properly walk into the Torah, to walk out God's ways. Indeed, Paul's going to tell us in Romans 8, that um, those who uh, those who do not have the Spirit of God cannot please God. They can't obey God. They can't actually uh, uh, fulfill the righteous requirement of the law because they have not received the Spirit of God on the inside. The new man has not been brought to life yet. So this is an extremely important point that the prophet is is highlighting here in verse 27. And then the final pasik, verse 28, Vishabtem. Uh, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you'll be my people, and I'll be my God. So God is confirming the words that he made with Abraham way back in Genesis 12 through, say, 15, uh, 17, chapters 12 through 17. And these promises are going to be uh, enacted for the people of Israel. Now, I realize this is not going to happen all at once. God did bring them back, but corporately, they're still waiting to receive the Spirit of God. But that doesn't mean that the promises are not effectual. In fact, we who name the name of Yeshua the Messiah are already enjoying uh, some of these promises because we've already received the Spirit, and we are able indeed to proclaim and walk into the Torah. Amen? Amen. All right, that's a good challenge for the Christian church who teaches that in Yeshua, the Torah is no longer relevant, and that by the Spirit we we walk according to a different law. I seem to think that that type of theology would disagree with the promises of the prophet here, and so um, if we're going to uh, teach that theology, we need to make sure that it lines up with the theology of the Tanakh, and so uh, that's going to be one of the challenges that we face as we study through the book of Galatians. All right, let's read some... Uh, liturgy out of the Apostolic Scriptures, a.k.a. the New Testament. And since we're going to be moving into chapter 2 of Galatians, I'll pull my liturgy from there. Again, a familiar passage, a familiar section. And we've read this in the past. Um, I'm bringing it up again for us. Um, we're only going to look at uh, Galatians 2, 11 through 14, just for the liturgy tonight. Uh, because I think that's what we're going to cover in the uh, commentary. Out of the ESV it reads, in English, starting in verse 11, But when Cephas came to Antioch, uh, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Uh, Cephas, I should say. Verse 12, Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And this is Paul, of course, rebuking Peter openly. And Paul says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Kephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And that's where we'll stop with the English. Let's jump over and read the um let's read the uh, uh the Greek of that as well. Uh let's see. Do we want the study Bible? No. Let give me a moment. Uh let's pull the let's use the interlinear. For those of you who are in the uh Skype screen with me, the Skype chat live chat you should see that I've got BibleHub.com pulled up, which is a kind of a fancy interlinear, which allows me to show the uh, uh, the Greek right there in the middle in the black, and got some transliteration up top, 
kind of some Latin uh, version, uh, a kind of a wooden translation in red, word for word, and then below that, kind of the uh, the parsings and the, the you know the parts of speech and things like that. So we'll start right here in verse eleven. Uh, the Greek reads, "Hati de elfen, elfen, kephas es antiochian, kata prosopon alto antesin, hati kenegos kenagusmenos in pro." I'm sorry, n starting stop there, verse twelve. Pro tu gar elfen tinas apo Jacobu metoton ethnon soon nesthen, hati de elfen hupostelen kai aforisen huitan. Fo buminas tus ek peritomes, verse thirteen. Kai kai loi judaioi haste kai barnabas suna pekethe autan te hypocrisy, verse fourteen. Alhati edan hati uk ortobudusen pros ten alethian tu. Huparakon ethnikos kai uk judaikos, I'm sorry, judaikos zes posta ethne, anankad zes judaitsein. And we're going to highlight some of these Greek words that we're seeing, like judaitsein, and um, some of the other uh, words uh, that we see, the anankad zes, why do you compel the Gentiles to Judaize? All right, so let's turn to our commentary. We left off near the bottom of page 92 last week. By the way, if you're uh, missing the commentaries, uh, make sure you head on out to my website and grab the audio commentaries there so that you can keep up with the study. If you're deciding to not join the Skype uh, chat each week, but instead are just following along with the audio. We're starting in verse 13 of chapter 1, just to uh, finish up chapter 1, and then we're going to jump over into chapter 2. Remember, uh, we're not going uh, verse by verse through this commentary, meaning this is not an exhaustive look at the book. Uh, for those of you who want a, a more thorough treatment of the book of Galatians and you'd like to maybe get a verse by verse, there are a few different commentaries out there on the web or available you know, verse by verse. Obviously, you can go to any Christian bookstore and pick up a commentary verse by verse there, but it may not be the Messianic view. It may not agree with your theology. So um, just Google search Messianic Galatians commentary. You're probably going to find mine as one of the hits, but uh, Tim Haig has a, a set that's available. Uh, you know, it's complete verse by verse. Um, let's see, Rick Spurlock has a verse by verse version, and, he, and he's Messianic. Um, those are the two right off the top of my head I know that have Messianic versions. Actually, FFOZ's version by uh, Thomas Lancaster, D. Thomas Lancaster, I think his book, Galatians, is somewhat verse by verse as well. All right, so chapter 1, verse 13 uh, reads, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And the verses that I'm highlighting in my commentary here, this kind of select tough phrases uh, section that we're in, the verses that I'm highlighting are verses that I have personally found to be kind of uh, flashpoint verses, if you will, uh, when discussions between traditional Christians and those within the Messianic movement take place. So you have this kind of this disagreement, of course, right? The traditional church uh, teaches that the Torah is no longer relevant, the Torah is no longer enforced, the Torah has been relaxed in Jesus, it has been set aside by Yeshua, it has been fulfilled by him. And basically, the church believes that Paul teaches the abrogation of the law, Paul teaches we're no longer under the law, we're under grace, uh, that we're no longer to concern ourselves as believers with the ceremonies of the law, uh, the trappings of the law, things like that. And yet, in traditional Torah circles, Torah communities, Messianic communities, whatever you want to call them, um, we have begun to embrace the Torah of Moshe. We have begun to um, follow after the ancient paths. We've begun to return to the uh, following uh, the Torah of Moshe as outlined for us in the Tanakh. And so this causes a sharp disagreement in theology between the two groups. And interestingly enough, it's no secret to most of you in the, in the uh, study tonight, interestingly enough, the book of Galatians becomes the weapon used by both groups to try and convince the other party of their position. Isn't that funny? So the verses I'm highlighting 
kind of fit into that uh, description. There are verses that are usually uh, the, the, the ones that carry the sharpest disagreements between the two groups. That's why I'm not really highlighting every verse in the book of Galatians, because most of the book of Galatians, um, both groups agree with. So I just want to highlight the ones that we have disagreement with. Here in verse 13, we've got this, we've got Paul saying that, uh, you know, speaking to the Galatians, you've heard of my former life in Judaism. And the traditional church says, aha, see, here you have it. Here's Paul declaring that he is no longer living according to the traditional tenets of Judaism. This is proof positive, they would say, that he has left Judaism in favor of Christianity. He says, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, right? What does that imply, they say? Well, that implies that his current life is Christian, right? And that seems to be the way that the verse is reading. That's why I read it in Greek. But let's see what my commentary has to say. <clears throat> and I'm working from what I believe is a, a grammatical, historical, uh, socio-religious perspective, meaning I'm trying to take the words of Paul in, in as a whole, not just not just letting one verse stand out there alone to teach theology. I think that's a bad way to study scripture if you're just going to let one verse um, dictate your theology. Rather, in order to understand the verse, you need to use context. And so the context of, the, of, the, of this verse needs to be read against the context of the rest of the chapter. And then we just keep expanding the context until we can discover the meaning. The context of this verse within the chapter. The context of the chapter within the book. The context of the book within the other books that have been written around that same time period with the, by the same author. And of course then, that whole uh, set of books within the context of the existing body of scriptures right? So, essentially, if we were to allow Paul to speak for himself, not from one verse only, but from within the larger canon of the rest of the Bible, then we're going to find that Paul really isn't admitting that his former life in Judaism was a former, um, a former religion that he followed after, and that he's now trying to explain that he follows after Christianity. Let's read what I have to say about that comments. It's critical to a proper understanding of Shaul that we recognize the syntax, that is the word order, of the Greek of this verse. The word order shows that former, the word former in the Greek, actually modifies the phrase life in Judaism and not previous Judaic life, as some might uh, presume. In other words, Paul's not saying my former life in Judaism, he's not saying my former, my previous uh, Judaic life. Uh, you've heard about my previous Judaic life. So the careful observation is made to show a shift within the paradigms of Judaism, not outside of them. In other words, um, Paul did not leave Judaism for a new religion called Christianity. Paul didn't invent a new, Christ, new religion at all. We're going to find out some more about this as we read down to the commentary to find that Rome would not have allowed a new religion to have been created within their state anyway, right? Um, they would have considered it treason against the emperor, who considered himself to be a type of god. So new religions weren't allowed. What instead is what's happening is that Paul is switching party lines, I like to say. So he's still within the confines of Judaism, um, but from a non-believing Jewish Pharisee to a believing in Yeshua's Pharisee, and all of this within the confines of first century Judaism. So he's not, it, it, it's, it's not as if he's leaving the religion of Judaism, rather he's simply graduating from traditional non-believing Judaism to now Messianic Judaism, so to say we could fill in words that we're familiar with today. Tim Haig's um, commentary highlights this, and I think it's important to uh, bring this out. Tim Haig writes, quote, We should note carefully that the word former, which is pate in the Greek, which when functioning as a particle in the verse, right, it means once or formerly. And Tim Haig notes that this word uh, pate functions to modify the word manner of life, so we got former manner of life, right, anastrophe, manner of life or lifestyle, my former lifestyle. It does not imply that Paul formerly lived within Judaism, but that as of the time he wrote the Galatians, he was no longer living within Judaism. That's not it at all. 
And um, Tim Haig goes on to conclude what he is contrasting, what Paul is contrasting, is his personal halakha, right? You remember halakha is your way of life, the way in which you walk out the Torah, the manner in which you uh, conduct your life according to your set of beliefs and your understanding of those beliefs. So Paul is contrasting his personal halakha before and after his faith in Yeshua as Messiah, not his former life in Judaism as opposed to his present life apart from Judaism. See the point there? <clears throat> uh, uh, E.P. Sanders, who wrote the famous uh, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, brings this point out very nicely in his book, uh, which I'm going to quote from time and again here in this commentary. Um, Paul didn't really go on a mission to destroy Judaism so much as he went on a mission to reform Judaism, to... to uh, revolutionize Judaism with the truth of Messiah to 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 do what the, what the prophet said in Ezekiel chapter 36 from the liturgy that we just read tonight. And what was that? God doesn't um, replace the people of Israel with a new people when he when he populates the land of Israel with a new religion, a new people and a new religion. Instead, God takes the same people that he had made promises to, and he in fact brings them to life by his Spirit and therefore places the words of Torah on the new creation heart. And this has the radical um, effect of transforming the person into a believer, meaning they, they uh, lay hold of the truths of God, their eyes are open, and they walk after the words of God, and they follow after the Messiah of God. In other words, it's, it's a it's a promise of New Testament. It's a promise of New Covenant. It's a promise of salvation. It's 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 uh, being brought to life right before our very eyes. So Paul doesn't have to say that he left Judaism for that reason. There's really no reason for him to leave Judaism. Uh, Judaism wasn't bankrupt. It wasn't... Uh, I mean, I realize it had its problems, but the point I'm trying to make is it's not necessary to pit or to say... Um, compare Judaism against Christianity as if Christianity trumps Judaism or something to that effect. So, let's keep reading. Uh, jump down into chapter 2 now. Uh, we're in the section on, on the top of page 94 entitled Galatians chapter 2. And we're going to spend a little time here. I didn't read this verse in the liturgy, um, but uh, let's comment on it nevertheless. Galatians 2 verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised though he was a Greek. And I bring this verse out because of Paul's discussion on circumcision, which we already know from our studies of the book of Galatians. Circumcision plays a very important role in understanding the book, both from a social-religious perspective as well as from a uh, perspective of lifestyle, halakha. Let's read my comments. Paul says that Titus was not forced to be circumcised, right? Even though Titus was a Greek. And yet, if you remember from memory, in Acts chapter 16, Paul actually did circumcise Timothy, which I don't think Timothy was forced to, to be circumcised by Paul in Acts chapter 16. So let's play with this word force, right? My comments read, the key to understanding this particular verse is the force of the Greek word translated as forced, pun intended, right? The Greek word force, which is anankadzo, to, which is translated by, let's see, footnote number 77 has, uh, yeah, the TSBD, Thayer's and Smith's Bible Dictionary, uh, defines uh, or uses, shows uh, Anankadzo as um, to necessitate, to compel, to drive, to, uh, by force, by threats, etc. In other words, to, to compel is probably the word that we're familiar with in the English. And... Basically, this word suggests, as I looked it up, it suggests that Titus, a Gentile believer, right? Paul says he was a Greek. He's a Gentile believer. He did not even wish to be circumcised at that time, even though it is a clear command of Torah, right? We know it's a command of Torah. You can read about it in Genesis uh, 17, and you can read about it in uh, Leviticus. I think it's Leviticus around chapter 6 or so. Um, so we know that that uh, uh, circumcision is a command, but many would say, well, of course he didn't get circumcised because he's a Greek, he's a Gentile, it was, it's only for Jews. Well, maybe, maybe not. Let's keep reading. 
why would Titus not wish to exercise his right to Torah as a full-fledged member of the community, right? He is a member of the Torah community, that is, he's a believer. Um, perhaps he was a green believer, right? You've, you've met people who are brand new baby believers. Perhaps he was a seasoned believer with proper motives, right? We don't know for, for sure, but we do know that he declined. Remember, uh, I say being with Shaul, he was surely aware of the prevailing rabbinic halakha that Gentiles were not considered covenant members until after conversion. So, in the first century view, conversion of Gentiles into Jews took place um, uh, for the purpose, ostensibly, supposedly, that is, to bring Gentiles into the covenant made with Israel. In other words, to turn them into Israelites, turn them into Jews. And supposedly, from this perspective, if a Gentile underwent uh, physical circumcision, that sealed the deal, so to say. That was one of the final steps that it took to turn a Gentile into a legally recognized Jewish member of the Israelite group. So, uh, uh, beca because uh, Titus traveled with Paul, I'm sure that he was aware of that particular perspective. Thus, I go on to say, um, Titus's motives for accepting or refusing circumcision at that time, I believe, were a reflection of his taking a stand with Paul to send the right signal to the newly formed Gentile faction within apostolic Judaism. Right? Uh, let me finish reading the, the uh, paragraph, and then I'll go back and explain any parts that seem to be uh, unclear. I go on to say... Um, uh, I recommend that she see the additional thoughts involving Peter on uh, 2.14 below. In other words, and we're going to talk about that tonight. We're going to keep talking about this idea. I think it's safe to assume that once the heat was off, circumcision would not present any problem for him personally. In other words, at the moment, at the time that um, Paul was writing the letter, and because of the, 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 the kind of the confusion in the Galatian communities about should we convert as Gentiles? Should we take on Jewish identity? In addition to our belief in Yeshua, what should we do? What should we do? And Paul, of course, um, strongly, strongly warning them not to go down the proselyte path for the wrong reasons. Then Paul's going to remove circumcision from their communities. And I think that's probably one of the reasons that that uh, influenced Titus' Titus' decision. Um, that... Shaul had Timothy, also considered a Greek by first century Jewish standards, circumcised in Acts chapter 16, I think, is proof that Shaul himself did not consider this particular commandment, this mitzvah, unimportant for followers of Yeshua. And that's the point I'm trying to highlight by bringing this verse out in the discussions that Christians have with Messianics. I don't think Paul is trying to minimize circumcision in and of itself. That's the point I'm trying to make. And I think that's the point that many Christians try to emphasize when they discuss uh, Paul's views of Torah with me. They try to tell me, well, look, see, Paul didn't think circumcision was very important. That's why he didn't uh, have Timothy circumcised. I'm sorry, why he didn't have Titus circumcised, etc., etc. I go on to say, what is more, that Shaul did not view circumcision as equal to conversion can be deduced by his comments in Galatians chapter 5 coming up later on, right? In some, I think this Greek word, anankadzo, shows up uh, a total of nine times in the Apostolic Scriptures. And if you look at footnote number 78, um, I've got the listing there for you. Uh, it shows up uh, many, many times in the Gospels and then Book of Acts. And then we see it here in Galatians. And we're going to see it here in Galatians again a few more times, this um, force, anankadzo. So, um, for our immediate interest, I go on to conclude for this verse, for our immediate interest, it is used twice more in this letter from Paul, Galatians 2.14, we're going to see, and we'll see it again in Galatians 6.12, and once in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Interesting by association, I believe, is how Paul uses this word in Acts 26.11, when Paul describes his former zeal to, quote, compel, that's the same Greek word, anankadzo, to compel, in quote, the followers of the way to blaspheme, to blaspheme, right? So, um, the bottom line is, uh, for this verse, I don't think that uh, Paul is trying to minimize 
circumcision in and of itself, especially for uh, believers of the community, believers in Yeshua. I think instead what Paul's simply trying to do is show uh, circumcision's proper value and proper place within the covenant of God. And that is, we're going to find out later on that Paul does not agree with his current Jewish counterparts in that circumcision is the sign of Jewish identity. Paul does not believe that circumcision is the sign of Jewish identity. I don't think he does. Instead, Paul sees circumcision in a different way. And so that's why Paul's going to withhold it from the Galatians, and Paul's not going to have a problem with Titus refusing to be circumcised. Okay, let's keep reading. Uh, let's see. Galatians 2.14. This is easily going to be the bulk of the commentary tonight for the next 20 minutes as we look at the words here. We might even also get into 2.15 and 16, but if we do, I don't think we'll finish it. So instead, let's go back up to 2.14. Okay, this is part of the liturgy that I read earlier. Galatians 2.14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Kephas before them all, Cephas, Kephas, I keep going back and forth between those pronunciations, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? All right. This whole section, by the way, starting in 2.14 um, and working its way down through at least verse 16, maybe, maybe even through the end of the chapter, most commentators would agree. This whole section in Galatians, for most uh, Christian commentators, they recognize that this is probably one of the central theological um arguments that is taking place in the book of Galatians itself. And so it forms a kind of uh, heart of Paul's theology. And so what we can do is we can begin to kind of build a central argument from these verses that we're going to be studying over the next week or two or three. And I agree with the Christian uh, commentaries this time in the sense that, that these verses form some of the, uh, uh, the foundational uh, points that Paul's trying to communicate to the group in Galatia. So let's read some of my comments, starting in, uh, starting with verse 14. Uh, we have this phrase, not in step with the truth of the gospel. And I, th I have found that this phrase itself suggests that Shaul is contending for defined and exclusive truths, right? Because we've got the definite articles in the Greek, tain aletheian. Tain is the uh, article, the definite article, the. And tu euangelio, the truth, the gospel. Uh, sometimes we don't always see that in the uh, English translations, not in step with the truth of the gospel. But I think both, this time the, uh, the, the definite articles are very important. So I think Paul is contending for defined truths here. The subject of which the subject of verses 11 through 13 to include Peter, obviously, um, are not upholding, right? The, 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 the people that Paul's rebuking with this letter, for whatever reason, Peter has fallen prey to their scheme. He's fallen into the trap of not standing in line with the truth at this particular point. I don't think this means Peter's leaving the truth of Messiah. Rather, the truth of the gospel also includes the relationship between Jew and Gentile to one another. And any time we try to teach a gospel that would minimize one of those two people groups, then we're not upholding the truth of the gospel. And I think that's the charge that Peter is being um, confronted with by Paul. Paul is basically pointing his bony finger at Peter and uh, um, uh, rebuking him for this reason. So compromise. Compromise has been taking place on a public level. And... Um, so, Shaul makes his rebuke public as well. Let's keep reading. We're on the bottom, I'm sorry, we're on the top of page 95. What does Paul say to Peter? Look at this sharp, stinging rebuke. If you, though a Jew, that is a Jew by birth and not a convert, right? If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, and then he continues later on. So, this is a really strange quote if you don't research it further. What does Paul mean to accuse Peter of not living like a Jew and, in fact, living like a Gentile? Well, of course, 
your traditional Christian church is going to say, the traditional Christian interpretation of these passages is going to say, well, here we have it again. This is Peter uh, um, living like a Christian and not like a Jew. Thus, Peter uh, gives us our example. We should also not live like we Christians. should also not live like Jews. We should live like Christians. And the and basically the whole the whole passage uh, from a traditional Christian perspective is that Peter essentially, if I can describe it, Peter basically, uh, although he was a Jew by birth, he had left Judaism and following Torah and had begun adopting this new Christian lifestyle wherein he no longer had to concern himself with keeping kosher. Therefore, he could eat with the Gentile Christians and he could eat ham and he could eat shrimp and the other uh, items that are for otherwise forbidden according to the Torah. He didn't have to live according to a Jew anymore. He could live as a Christian living under the freedom of Messiah and he could therefore eat I'm using air quotes with my fingers, non-kosher food with the other Gentile Christians, and he could enjoy his life as a believer. But then, suddenly these men from James showed up in Jerusalem, and they kind of spooked Peter, who, although he's a a Jew by birth, they kind of spooked him because these are these these Jews by birth from James. These guys are kind of more what we might describe as Orthodox Jews. And they saw Peter, a Jew, living like a Gentile and eating non-kosher food. And Peter kind of felt the pressure of these Orthodox guys show up. And so they kind of persuaded Peter to stop hanging out with the Gentile Christians and to stop eating non-kosher food. They kind of persuaded Peter to, to waffle a bit and to go back over into Judaism to live like a Jew again, to keep kosher again and to break fellowship with the Gentiles. And uh, and then when Peter caught, I'm sorry, when Paul caught wind of this whole situation, where Peter's kind of going back to traditional Judaism, going back to keeping kosher, uh, even though the Messiah's done away with all that, and Peter, Paul then is going to be upset that Peter is essentially going back under the law, going back to keeping kosher, and not enjoying the freedom of living like a Gentile Christian the way he should. All right, that's essentially the traditional popular view of this whole Peter-Paul exchange going on in the book of Galatians. But I disagree. I disagree. And so let's read my commentary. Top of page 95. In what way is Shaul accusing Peter of living like a Gentile? Right, This phrase, uh, you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. Well, here's the way I see it. From the inner circle perspective of those who apply Torah to their lives on a daily basis, to live like a Gentile would mean to invite non-Jews into close quarters where table fellowship is likely to take place. So in other words, I'm describing this group of Jewish people who, whether they believe in Yeshua or not, uh, I don't want to focus on that first, but the central point in describing this group is that first and foremost, they believe that uh, the Torah is a Jewish-only document. And this is this is in accordance with the way that we know now that the first century Judaisms of Paul's day actually did um, describe themselves, how they, uh, what we could say, what their self-understanding of their group identity consisted of. They believed in a kind of a Jewish-only Israel, where it was Jews and only Jews who were covenant members, Jews and only Jews who had an exclusive audience with God. And so to live like a good Jew was to only keep fellowship with Jews, or at least only keep covenant with Jews. So to bring or to invite table fellowship, especially table fellowship, because from a first century Jewish perspective, table fellowship was was where genuine covenant started, where where it began, where where uh, relationships really sprouted. That was kind of at the table. To sit at table with a Gentile from the from this kind of um, sectarian Jewish perspective in Paul's day, to bring a, a Jew, a Gentile into table fellowship was to live like a Gentile, was to to break with uh, traditional Jewish-only party lines. You see what I'm saying here? So that's p- firstly uh, what Paul's going to talk to Peter about. So to be sure, as I uh, continue in my commentary, verse 11 and 12 of this chapter show that Peter was in fact eating with Gentile believers prior to the arrival 
of the, quote, men from James, end quote, right? The men in black, the men from James, right? These these Orthodox Jews, if you can kind of picture that in your mind. These, these really strict Jewish men who towed the Jewish-only party line that Jews should only... Uh, kind of schmooze or mingle with Jews, and especially have table fellowship only with Jews. You can read about some of this type of interaction in the Mishnah, in the Mishnah, where where the rabbis um, kind of counsel Jewish people against getting too close to Gentiles, especially in table fellowship. Because if you sat at table with a Gentile, then you, and you started enjoying food with a Gentile, you don't know when that Gentile is going to try and uh, convince you to follow other gods, or to follow after idolatry, or to uh, enjoy wine that was poured out as a libation to a false god, or something like that. So the rabbis of the Mishnah, of the Talmud, the Mishnah of the Gemara, they have to come along and uh, begin to, to warn the Jewish communities against getting too close to the Gentiles of their day. It's not that table fellowship or, or relationships didn't take place, they actually did. So that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm simply trying to say that there was this, this kind of this socio-religious, uh, uh, suspicious view of the Gentiles from within the Jewish perspective. And uh, Paul, of course, is going to challenge all of that. He's going to challenge all that. Why? Because Paul no longer views Gentiles as suspect. That's the whole point. So I go on to say in my... Um, in my um, uh, commentary here, starting here. Um, from a sectarian point of view, like the one obviously held to by those in opposition to Gentile inclusion, right? Those men from James would be uh, included in this description. To eat with Gentiles was simply taboo. It was not against the law, but it was taboo. It was not acceptable if one wished to tow the Jewish party line accurately. If you wanted to be a good Jew in Paul's day, whether you believed in Jesus or not was really not the main point at first. The main point of contention in Paul's day <clears throat> was the line of demarcation between Jews and Gentiles. It's, it wasn't really your belief in Yeshua at first. Firstly, it was this idea that Gentiles are not genuine covenant members until they acquire legal Jewish status. So, if you want to be a good Jew, you only eat with Jews. So, Paul's phrase to live like a Gentile, when Paul says this to Peter, it most certainly does not, in my understanding, it does not mean that Peter ate food that was clearly proscribed, that is clearly prohibited, by the Torah. Right? Recall Peter's confession to God in Acts chapter 10, verse 14. Right, Paul. Uh, Peter says, "I've never a eaten anything common or unclean." Lord, remember the voice that uh, confronted Peter when he was in the vision on the rooftop, and the sheet was lowered with all manner of food in there, all manner of animals, I should say. And the the voice says, "Rise, kill and eat." Rise, slaughter, actually, and eat. Sacrifice language there going on, and um, Peter refuses. Peter refuses the bot kol, the voice from God. Peter says no, and, he's, and, and he gives his explanation. He says, because I've never eaten anything common or unclean. So, if that's Peter's position, then why do we have to assume, like the traditional Christian commentaries do, that Peter was actually eating non-kosher food with these Gentiles? The text doesn't say that he was eating non-kosher foods. So I think that's a mistake to read that into this particular passage. So to live like a Gentile, I don't think it means that Peter was adopting non-kosher food standards at this point in time. For a Jew, I go on to say, for a Jew to be labeled by another Jew as, quote, living like a Gentile, was simply to accuse him of having close relations with Gentiles. This particular sentence in my in, right in the middle of the, my paragraph here, this is kind of the key to understanding this particular exchange between Peter and Paul, right? Peter is being accused of basically keeping fellowship with Gentiles as a Jew, meaning being accused from the men from James. So we've got two people, two voices on 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 Peter's uh, on either side of Peter's head. You remember this whole picture of they got an angel on one side and a demon on the other or whatever, and both are trying to get your attention. Uh, on one side, we got Peter being a, probably being accused of 
um, not being a good Jew because he's hanging out with Gentiles. And on the other side, we've got Paul accusing Peter of being playing the hypocrite because he withdrew from fellowship from the Gentiles. You know, so Peter's kind of caught up in the middle. So exactly what was Paul's, or what was Peter guilty of? Let's keep reading. Because Shaul stressed the equality of Jewish and Gentile covenant membership via Messiah Yeshua, right? Listen up. Paul stressed, in fact, this is a central theme in Paul's letters, the equality of Jewish and Gentile covenant membership via, excuse me, via Messiah Yeshua. Because this is one of Paul's central pillars of his theology, it is not a peripheral issue, people. It is a central part of Paul's theology. Because of this, for Peter to waffle in his relations with Gentile believers simply because they were Gentiles was to live as a good Jew should. Only from the perspective of the prevailing Jewish thinking of his day. Did you guys catch it? To break fellowship with Gentiles because they're Gentiles is the way that every good Jew should live according to their perspective. In other words, Paul disagrees with that perspective. In other words, in the minds of Shaul, to live within the boundaries of the halacha of a normative Judaism who defined herself as exclusively Jewish was unacceptable for a Messianic Jew the likes of Peter. And that's really the charge that Paul is laying at Peter. Peter, you're a Messianic Jew. You're a Messianic Jew. You understand the central truth that Jesus, that Yeshua, the Messiah, has unified the Jew and the Gentile as one new man. Right? Peter, you should know this, Paul would say to him. So you should not be breaking fellowship with the Gentiles simply because they're Gentiles. Because those men from James told you that you're living like a Gentile, that you're living like a bad Jew. Right? So it's within that perspective, I think, that we can begin to understand Paul's rebuke to Peter. To live like a Jew, right now we explain to live like a Gentile. We explain to live like a Gentile means from the uh, uh, sectarian perspective, from the Jewish-only perspective, to live like a Gentile is, to, is for one Jew to accuse another Jew to have fellowship with the Gentiles. In other words, you live like a Gentile. You're Gentilized. You're, 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 you're foregoing your own... Um, this is one Jew accusing another Jew, right? You're foregoing your own uh, loyalty to the Jewish covenant by hanging out with those Gentiles. It's kind of this... Uh, it's kind of this almost kind of a racism going on, you know, hanging out with them. It's a them versus us mentality in the first century. And the them was the Gentiles and the us are the Jews. And uh, I, I think if you begin to um, study the book of Galatians with this in mind, it will begin to make more sense uh, uh, sociologically and um, theologically. So we've explained this idea to live like a Gentile. Now, let's explain this idea to live like a Jew. What does it mean to live like a Jew? What does it mean that Peter was forcing Arankadzo, right? Forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews, which, which is a really kind of a strange turnaround. Peter's being accused of living like a Gentile, yet he's also being accused of forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews, right? Wouldn't it make better sense if, if Peter just forced, uh, if Peter uh, lived like a Jew and forced the Gentiles to live like Jews, or... Wouldn't it make more sense if Peter lived like a Gentile and forced the Gentiles to live like Gentiles? But Paul's got this double accusation going on. He's accusing Peter of two things. One, living like a Gentile, or really he's not accusing him of it, but he's, he's, he's telling him, hey, you know, according to your own, uh, according to the men from James, you live like a Gentile anyway, which, hey, we do. We live like Gentiles. If, if that's the label they want to lay on us because we're Messianic, because we believe that Jews and Gentiles are equal in Messiah, then hey, I guess it's true. We do live like Gentiles. So what? But what's this whole, whole idea of, of Peter forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's keep reading. To live like a Jew, right? We've got the Greek phrase, you died zane. To Judaize, you died so. I'm sorry. The Greek uh, uh, verb there, you died so. You died so. This phrase right itself, uh, you died so, is where we get the, um, the English word Judaize. Peter was Judaizing the Gentiles. And 
I promise you, if you bring up this term Judaize in traditional Christian circles, you're always going to get a negative view of this term Judaize. You're always going to receive this. I say always quite exclusively because I, I don't know of many, uh, I don't know of any Christians, quite honestly, who wish to be Judaized, who say, please, please Judaize me. Please, Mr. Messianic Jew, please come and Judaize me. Judaizing has become a, a pejorative term is the point I'm trying to say, right, right up there along with uh, living like a Pharisee. So we got this idea, Judaize. Um, the phrase itself may even suggest that Peter unknowingly supported the halakha that favored circumcising Gentiles before they could enjoy unlimited Jewish community access, right? Peter may have actually been agreeing by his actions with the idea that unless a Gentile becomes a Jew, he's not recognized as a genuine covenant member in the eyes of God. Remember, that's essentially the uh, basic, uh, the traditional uh, prevailing view of Paul's day, of Paul's uh, contemporaries, of the unbelieving Jews of Paul's day, and that is that uh, Jews and only Jews share a place in the world to come. All Jews and only Jews, like we read in the Mishnah Sanhedrin 10.1, all Israel share, has a place in the world to come. Uh, basically, it was this, this exclusive Jewish uh, view of the Torah, of God, of the spirit, of the covenants, of membership the whole thing. It was a kind of a Jewish-only thing. And until a Gentile changed his legal status into becoming a Jew, then basically uh, the Gentile had no hope in the world. He had no hope of, um, of being accepted by God. And so for, Jew, for Peter to, to knowingly or unknowingly, right, he's guilty either way, for Peter to, to suggest that Gentiles are not full-fledged, genuine, lasting covenant members in the sight of God until they become legally recognized Jews. For, for Peter to even suggest that by his actions, by withdrawing from the Gentiles because they are Gentiles, for Peter to do so was grievous in Paul's eyes. And so perhaps that's part of the uh, consternation that Paul was, was feeling against Peter. Right? So you kind of have to remember that perspective. Paul says, how is it, he says this to Peter, how is it then that you force, right, Anankadzo, the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? And this question seems to reinforce the notion that from Shaul's point of view, whether knowingly or unknowingly, Peter was guilty of undermining the central truth of the equality of the gospel for both Jews and Gentiles without either one having to be converted by coercion, right? Either way, if Paul was teaching that Gentiles must, must, must become Jews before they can be saved, then Paul is not teaching the central truth of the gospel. If that were Paul's view, then it means that Jesus, I'm sorry, yes, it means that Jesus, that Yeshua, is the Messiah of Jews only, and it would mean that God is the God of the Jews only. Do you understand my theology? If you must become a Jew before you can be accepted by God, then God is the God of Jews only. He is not the God of Gentiles. And Yeshua is not the Messiah of Gentiles. But that's not what Paul teaches. And I'm sure everyone here is catching that. The central truth of the gospel, at this perspective that Paul is highlighting, is that God is the God of both Jews and Gentiles. Right? And... A Gentile can be brought into the family of God by becoming a believer in Messiah, not by becoming a Jew. And so Peter, Paul is going to point his finger at him, Peter, by withdrawing your fellowship from the Gentiles, you're sending the wrong signal. You're sending the signal that they are not equal in God's eyes because they're not Jews. You're sending the message that they are second-class citizens. Does that sound familiar? We're hearing that today in today's Messianic circles. Oh, the Torah is for Jews, and most of it is for Jews, and the Gentiles are divinely invited to follow it if they want, but they're not covenantally bound to it. Why? Because they're second-class citizens. I know, now I know, I know, I know, in all fairness, our Jewish, Messianic Jewish leaders aren't actually calling the Gentiles second-class citizens, but that's the signal that the Gentiles get when they feel that the Torah is not for them because they're not Jews. So, back to my commentary. 
I think Peter was probably not aware of this because he was a simple fisherman and because he probably didn't weigh out the full ramifications of the signal that he was sending to the Gentiles by withdrawing his fellowship once the men from James showed up and kind of put that social pressure on him to back away from these non-Jews. But nevertheless, Paul knew it. Paul saw it and it stunk. And so that's why Paul is going to accuse Peter of this hypocrisy. Whether Peter knew it or not, he was still guilty. Let's keep reading. We're almost finished with my commentary here. Um, so the English word rendered force here, right? How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow? Can be uh, translated as compel or constrain because it's our, it's our already familiar Greek word, anankadzo. We could say, how is it then that you compel Gentiles to follow Gentile, uh, Jewish customs? How is it that you constrain them? How is it that you um, force them with your actions, right? Social pressure is a type of coercion, especially when it's um, used to kind of shut out one group, to exclude them uh, from table fellowship, to shut the, to, to essentially, from Paul's perspective, to essentially put the Gentiles out of table fellowship uh, with the other believers, with the other Gentile, with the other Jewish believers, simply because those Gentiles didn't uh, convert to Judaism, was to send a social kind of pressure to to put pressure on them from a social religious perspective, right? It's kind of the uh, it, again, it's a, it's a, it's a form of discrimination to discriminate against the Gentiles because they're not Jews. That's kind of what was I see as going on. And uh, I'm just going to keep stressing it because I think it's one of the better ways to understand the book of Galatians. And so, as I conclude this uh, particular section uh, in, uh, as, in our look on uh, chapter 2, verse 14, um, a fellow Torah student, um, I wanted to make a, a, a note, that a fellow Torah student of mine pointed out to me that the Jewish customs in question, right, Remember, it says, uh, how is it then you, that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs, right? What were the Jewish customs? One of my students pointed out that they likely included the specific group requirements that excluded Gentiles from full covenant membership and thus full Torah participation. In other words, maybe the Jewish, the Jewish customs that, that Peter was knowingly or unknowingly um, compelling these Gentile believers to try and uh, adopt was parts of the oral Torah, right? From point of fact, written Torah actually never forbids Jew to Gentile fa uh, table fellowship. And that, by the way, also is a central point of this discussion. The Torah of Moshe, the, and I'm going to leave off with this, the Torah of Moshe does not forbid Jews and Gentiles from enjoying table fellowship one with another. What it does forbid is entering into covenant with pagans. Believers are not to enter into covenant with pagans. And usually, covenants began with table fellowship, or they were ratified with table fellowship. They were solidified over uh, uh, food and drink. So, they either began or ended with table fellowship often, at least in the ancient Near Eastern worldview, the ancient Middle Eastern worldview. They don't so much today. I mean, they do a little bit, but you, you kind of have to figure the the the, uh, the importance of eating with one another in the first century. And in closing, Jews and Jews essentially ate with one another because of not only because of the the the, uh, the uh, presence of kosher foods, but also because of the recognition that that the two were in covenant under the same God. And table fellowship was a kind of a sign of recognizing the uh, shared covenant that the two parties had with one another. So to bring someone into table fellowship was to basically say to them, um, I recognize that you and I are in covenant with one, one with one another. So for Peter to, to, to break fellowship was essentially saying to them, you guys, are not, you guys aren't Jews, I can't eat with you, and I don't recognize your covenant membership. I don't recognize you as fellow covenant members. And that's the part that's really going to upset Paul. All right, so I think we kind of uh, worked this angle uh, fairly, fairly uh, oh, I'd say fairly, uh, f uh, pretty conclusively. Um, we're going to continue our look into this uh, dialogue between Peter and Paul next week when we turn to chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, which, uh, again, is one of the central uh, topics of the book of Galatians and this whole idea of how is one actually brought into the family of God? How is one actually brought into genuine covenant membership? Is it 
by the works of the law, or is it by faith in Jesus Christ? We'll look at that next week. But for now, let's dismiss in prayer. Those of you who are in the live class after we uh, dismiss, um, I will allow you to open up your microphones and we can just fellowship with each other and ask questions and, and make comments and things like that. Okay, let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. And I thank you so much, Lord, that you have uh, called us once again to enjoy fellowship one with another, demonstrating that as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah, that we are the one new man, that we are they who have received the Spirit of God according to the Ezekiel 36 passage, that you have written your words on our heart, that you have uh, removed the heart of stone, and that you have given us a heart of flesh, and that you're causing us to walk into your ways Lord, we so much thank you that uh, by demonstrating the equality of Jew and Gentile and Messiah, that we are demonstrating the truth of the gospel and that we will not, we will not yield to any lies that says that the Torah is for Jews only. We will not yield to the lie that says that the Torah has been done away with, that has been relaxed, that has been superseded uh, by another covenant. Lord, we we relish the fact that you have uh, hidden your word on our hearts. And we know that it's because of that uh, that we are able to walk it out by your spirit. We have been empowered by Messiah to walk into the words. We know also that we have a great commission to live as lights, to live as a witness, to live as ambassadors. And so, Lord, we pray that you'll give us boldness, a holy boldness to witness, uh, to continue to uphold the name of Messiah, to not be ashamed of um, the gospel, for it is the power of salvation unto the Jew and also to the Greek. Thank you, Lord, for this truth. We'll continue to bless you and praise you in the name of Messiah, Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. 